He's making a list, checking it twice. Gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus, what a great story. Who doesn't love a, a jolly fat guy with rosy cheeks, flying reindeer, a sleigh, and a bunch of gifts? I mean, who doesn't love a good gift giver? But upon further review, Santa Claus isn't a true gift giver, is he? It's more like an employer doling out what has been earned. He, he keeps a list, kind of like a timesheet, Make sure that you've been, been good, and then he, he rewards you based on your performance. I don't know if there are any bonuses or incentives in that package, but that's how Santa Claus works. I think many of us have adopted kind of a Santa Claus approach to Christianity. We think, as long as I'm a good person and do good things, then God will reward me. He'll find me acceptable. But friends, Christianity actually teaches the opposite of that. Maybe you ask someone on the street, and maybe even uh, a regular church attender, hey, what, what makes you right with God? Do you, do you think you're going to heaven? Usually you'll get the response like, well, really, I'm a good person. I think I've done more good things than bad things, and so I, I think that I'll, I'll be in heaven. And the belief underneath of that is that everybody gets what they deserve. Again, Christianity flies in the face of that. It says not everybody gets what they deserve, but that God has taken action to give all who repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus the exact opposite of what they deserve. Christianity teaches us not that the good people are in and the bad people are out, but that all of us are out. That all of us fall under the category of bad people, of sinner, rebel against God. That all of us need a Savior. So if, if God just gives everybody what they deserve, well then you and I and everybody else that has ever lived, we will inherit hell. Praise God, that's not how he operates. Praise God that we sin and Jesus saves. And that's our main idea this evening. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. And I hope that through the sin of Adam and Eve, when we observe sin and wickedness entering into our world, that we're able to see just what it is we've been saved from. Just how glorious and gracious our God is. And the exhortation following with the last few messages anyways taken from one of your Christmas hymns. It's let nothing you dismay or be encouraged. You have it there if you were wise and went where the bulletins usually are. There's a little insert. If you guys like it, you can take it on your way out. If not, I'll throw them away. But they'll, they'll help you. Let me tell you how the outline's going to go. We're going to spend the majority of our time in verses 1 through 7, uh, kind of wading in the water there. And then the rest of our time, we'll just kind of skip a rock across the top of the pond in verses 8 through 24. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text.
Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you. We thank you that you have spoken to us in your word and perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and rose from the dead so that we too might rise from the dead. We ask this evening that you would sober us to the incredible truth of his incarnation. Pray that you would speak. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And so we're going to situate ourselves here in Genesis 3 a little bit. And if you know, the very beginning of the Bible is Genesis. And what happens in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God makes everything and he makes it very, very good. Right? Verse 31 of chapter 1, God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. And there's just one thing that we see that isn't quite right. He, he made man good, but then he turns around and says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he knocks Adam out, he steals a rib, and he makes woman. Adam wakes up with visions of his naked wife, he sings a song, and we read at the end of chapter 2 in verse 25, both the man and his wife were naked, and yet they felt no shame. Everything is perfect. Adam and Eve are enjoying all the delights of Eden. And the note about their unashamed nakedness there isn't to tell us that they're exhibitionists or to promote the ideals of nudists. It's symbol-laden, like the rest of the narrative here. It's to teach us that they are in perfect harmony with God and with one another. The stain of sin has not yet entered into the world. Everything is perfect. There is nothing to hide. They know one another and they know God. And things are very, very good. In sum, God really nailed this whole creation thing. It's excellent. And then we enter into the beginning of chapter 3, where we read this. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So we can understand the complexity of this temptation, I think it's important that we understand just who or what this serpent is. Right, Moses writes this account as history. He means for us to understand it as history, but he, he doesn't lay out for us how communication works in the Garden of Eden. And so we don't know if a, a snake talking is just normal, everyday business or if it's an anomaly. Furthermore, we, we don't really know in Genesis that this serpent is anything more than cunning and crafty and evil. Though the rest of Scripture informs us that this is certainly Satan or the devil who is tempting Adam and Eve. But right now, we just see a creature who is to be ruled over by man rising up and conversing with them as an equal, leading them astray. The serpent, we are told, is crafty or cunning. I don't know if you've had this experience recently. I, I do a good bit of reading on, uh, kin on my Kindle, and so I'll go to Amazon and I'll look for books, and there's this new thing they've started to do. It's very crafty, very cunning, and that big yellow button that used to be like, you know, click here to buy, now says, click here to read for free. And you think to yourself, wow, 
That's too good to be true. And then you click, and all of a sudden you discover that you've subscribed to a monthly service for a low rate of somewhere around $10, where you can read all these books for free. Very crafty of them. I don't mean to equate Amazon with the devil. I love Amazon. But I'm saying this is the kind of thing that Satan is good at. He's crafty. He's tricky. He aims to upend God's rule over God's people in God's place. And he does it by means of appealing to this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're first introduced to this tree in verse 16 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. This, this tree is important. And I think sometimes I have to, we have to clear away some of, uh, I guess, misunderstandings about this tree. Like, I think any picture you see is kind of like Adam and Eve have their fig leaves and there's like a bite taken out of an apple. But like a text doesn't tell us if this is an apple or not. We just know that it's, it's fruit tree. It's not, it's not as if God is like, pears and pineapples are cool, but he really has it out for apples, right? Not whimsical like that. It's about what the fruit represents. And this tree represents God's rule and reign. It represents his sovereignty, his control, his power. It stands as a reminder to Adam and Eve that their authority over creation is not ultimate. It's derived, it's contingent upon the God who made them. And so the tree stands as a monument to God's kingship. Furthermore, the tree is a reminder that God is the one who judges. It is God who determines good and evil. Any Israelite worth their salt would have known when they read this passage that those who judge good and evil were the judges the leaders of Israel. They would make wise decisions about what was right and wrong and adjudicate accordingly. And so the tree also stands as a symbol of God's judgment. It is, if you will, a tree of judgment. And so that that helps us to understand this temptation a little bit when, when Satan shows up in his cunning, in his craftiness, to try and trick the woman into partaking from the tree. To eat from this tree is to declare war on God. To eat from this tree is to say, God doesn't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. And so so Satan comes and he says to Eve, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, and God said, you must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. You see what, what Satan's started to do here is he's made this kind of implicit suggestion. You can't eat from any of these trees. He's suggesting that God in some way is holding out on Eve, that there's some goodness that's just outside of her grasp that God doesn't want her to have. This couldn't be more wrong in reality. But but Eve, she is 
closing her eyes to the brilliant colors and life of the garden, and she's painting everything in gray. She's overlooking the goodness of God in favor of the words of a serpent. God might be holding out on her, she thinks. And maybe you've thought that at some point in your life, but but friends, I want to tell you, God is not holding out on you. He's for you. He's good. He is about increasing your happiness and your joy. He has the scars to prove it. God's word is given to us so that we might enter into the fullness of God's delight. So we might know pleasure. His word's not against us. He's not trying to keep good from us. He's not trying to keep good from Adam and Eve here. He's, he's like a good parent. Like Good parents tell their kids, don't touch the hot stove. Not because they're trying to rob their child of any joy, but the opposite trying to keep them from inflicting pain upon themselves. Good parents don't let their children have ice cream for every meal. Sure, it might taste good. But in the long term, it's going to make you very unhealthy. It won't be for your good. Children, your your parents give you rules and restrictions to increase your happiness. They're for you. They're not against you. And God is not against Adam and Eve, he's for them. His word is good. His word is about bringing them life and keeping them from death. I wonder, do you you know and trust God's word? Do you know it and do you know it to be good? Because if you do not, time after time after time, when temptations and testing comes, you will follow your heart and your sinful inclinations rather than listening to God's voice. Because you go, well, does God really know what's best for me? I think I know. I might know what's best. You might say, along with Satan, has God really said that I shouldn't do this? Or that I should do that? Friends, God has spoken to us in His Word. It's why we give so much time to reading our Bibles, praying our Bibles, preaching the Bible. We believe that God has spoken to us, that He's revealed Himself to us in His Word and in Jesus Christ. And so we come together in order to hear what He has said. We, we come to hear God's Word so that we might encounter God and be made alive to Him. We might draw close to him. His word is good. But but right away, Eve is beginning to entertain doubts about that. Has God really said? Yeah, he said we can't even touch that tree. Notice the addition. He's, He's drawing her away from God. He's drawing her her gaze away from God and putting her eyes onto herself. She's she's navel-gazing, if you will. Satan comes and makes a second suggestion. Verse 4. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. 
the first doctrine denied in Scripture is judgment. And it's also the most frequently denied doctrine of Scripture, I think, because people just don't like judgment. I think primarily because they want to live however the hell they want, without consequence. But God is good. Because he is good, he will judge sin and evil. He will not suffer the defaming of his name and the propagation of evil in perpetuity. He will exact payment for sin. And the chief example of this is the cross of Christ. God doesn't just sweep sin and evil under the rug. He says, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to deal with it personally. Jesus comes and absorbs the wrath of God in our place for our sins so that we can come to him with nothing and say, I'm I'm yours and enjoy the blessing of God that we don't deserve. And if we refuse to do that, our evil hasn't yet been dealt with. But God will deal with it. Hebrews tells us it's appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment. There is an ending and there is a reckoning for all those who are not taking shelter beneath the blood of Christ. There is an eternity of misery. An eternity of God's right justice being poured out. All sin has been or will be paid for. Your sin has been paid for in Christ if you'll put your faith in Him. Or it will be paid for by you. Because God is good. And He's going to set things right. He's going to make everything sad untrue. He's going to deal with evil. The reason He hasn't yet is so that many might come to repentance and faith that many might enter into his joy, that many might hear his word and come to life out of death. He will not surely die. What a lie. The serpent's word against God's. He continues, though, and offers a third suggestion. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a great temptation of humanity, is it not? You can know what's best for you. You can rule yourself. You can rule your life. You can decide what's right and wrong for you. You can decide anything you want about your life. You can be in charge. You can be and live as your own God. And Eve sees, verse 6, that the tree is good for food, delightful to look at, and desirable for obtaining wisdom. I don't know how she came to these conclusions, but you can kind of see how Satan might have plucked a a piece of fruit off of the tree and began eating it. See, it's good for food. I don't know that that's what happened. But you can see that she thinks that this snake is quite smart. She begins to covet the fruit. And so she took some of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he 
8. The heinousness of this act isn't in the act itself, but in the motivation underneath of it. Their goal is to de-God God. Their goal is to ascend to the throne of God. They're saying, your judgments aren't good, God. Your sovereignty is no good. I will be sovereign. I will judge right and wrong. And all of a sudden, they're knowing good and evil, but not in the way they thought. They know evil from the inside. See, God knows it from the outside. Like a doctor might know about a debilitating disease from the outside. And a patient knows it from the inside. He knows what it is to, to suffer. They didn't get what they bargained for. It was too good to be true. They, they could be, not be God's rival. They eat it. It's such so simple an act that it, it's so hard to undo. It's going, God himself will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. Here, the woman and the man, they take and eat of the fruit, and it's not until we come to Christ in the New Testament when he's saying, the one who takes of my body and eats and drinks of my blood shall have everlasting life. Oh, it costs so much for God to reconcile us to himself. Because all of us, like Adam and Eve, have this innate, wicked desire to call, the own sh- uh, call our own shots, to live however we want. And yet God in his graciousness comes to us, moves towards us, and speaks. This is kind of what we see here in a minute. But first, let's look at at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is is meant to be a little silly and kind of funny because it's just so (laughs) frivolous. I don't know if you've ever tried to cover up with leaves. It's it's a losing gambit there. It just doesn't work out. As we're supposed to see, they're trying to cover their their guilt and their shame. And and the point is, there's no going back to verse 25 of chapter 2. Everything was good. They were in perfect harmony with God and one another, known and fully known. And now they have guilt and shame. For the first time in the history of man, he is feeling the weight of sin. He does what we do. He hides. She hides from God. And God moves towards them. Moves towards them. Their nakedness is not something they could fix on their own. They couldn't cover themselves up. But if you go uh, to what, verse 21, see something just great. The Lord God made clothing from the skins of animals for the man and his wife. They couldn't cover their shame and their nakedness, but God would do that for them here in the short term. And that would anticipate God covering the shame and guilt of his people's sins in the long term by the blood of of Jesus Christ. God loves sinners. He, he doesn't come to us and give us his grace and mercy on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of who he is. And 
Then the man and his wife, verse 8, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and he said, where are you? This is a chilling image in the text. It has the, the sense of regularity to it, of routine. It makes me think of my own life when I come home in the evening and my children come running to the door. I'm kind of a hero in my house. Big deal there. Daddy, 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 daddy. All of them. Get down there, give them a big hug. Maybe tickle them. Look at that sense. Like God is, is showing up for his evening fellowship with Adam and Eve. And instead of finding them with enlarged hearts and smiling faces, he finds silence that crawls up your spine. As they hide in their guilt and their shame. And still he speaks. And he lets them know a promise and the consequence of their actions. Verse 10, Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God asked, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, the woman you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock. And more than any wild animal, you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. This is a, again, symbol-laden. This is language of cursing. Corpses breathe and eat dust. The serpent is already crawling on its belly, but the idea is that its food is going to be dust. There's nothing but judgment left for the serpent in the long term. We even see uh, dust again in verse 19. We're going to see in a second. It talks about man returning to dust. It's a judgment language. Eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the woman, I'm sorry, he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed. You will eat from it by means of painful labor. All the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat, the bread. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. You are no God. Verse 20, the man named his wife Eve, because she was mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from the skins of the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. There is a lot going on here. We don't have time to explore it all. And so I'm just going to point out the kind of the peaks, the highlights 
the primary consequence, the worst consequence of their sin is banishment from the garden. Banishment from the garden means banishment from God's presence. God is not going to allow them to live in their sin forever. So he kicks them out. And all of a sudden, there's this great irony. Adam and Eve were to be keepers of the garden, protectors of the garden. And now they are barred from entering. There's no way back into God's presence. They are banished. We see another consequence will be relational rivalry in verse 16 between uh, the man, man and the woman. Their harmonious relationship in Eden will now be marked with blame shifting and finger pointing. They'll become rivals. Also see that there will be consequences in terms of their work and their labor. Do you notice this? Uh, the woman's going to have pain in her work of childbearing. And the man is going to have pain in his labor or work of, I guess, farming, gardening. This sin is affecting relationship with one another, relationship with God. It's affecting their work. They're also told that they are going to die physically. Right? And there is a threefold death. Physical death teaches us about the spiritual death. We're separated from God. We'll die physically. And then there is eternal death or eternal life. We die once and then comes judgment. This is directly in contrast with what Satan said. You will not surely die, God. You're dust and to dust you will return. You will die. And then we see in verse 15, this struggle. I will put hostility between you. He's speaking to the serpent here, God is. I'll put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So he says to the serpent, you, the woman, and her offspring will be at war. There'll be hostility between you. This Conflict between darkness and light. There's also a promise there. The offspring of the woman will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And if you catch the promise, it's not super flashy or explicit, but it's there. Called by theologians the Proto-Evangelion. That sounds fancy. It's the first proclamation of the gospel. And we can see that this is a promise because, and it's a promise that Adam believes because we look at verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living things. This doesn't make any sense if you just read the story, right? Like him and her, they just partook uh, at the tree of judgment. They went, they de-godded God, they ate this apple, they, they are in rebellion against him. And he turns around and he names her not, I would name her death maybe, right? <laughs> she helped usher in sin to, into the world. She brought death into the world. But he names her Eve. He names her mother of the living because he hears this promise. It's the promise of a new man, of a new Adam that will reconcile God and men. And the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible is looking for this offspring who's going to 
make everything sad untrue, who's going to reconcile God and men. We think it's Cain in chapter 4, but he turns out to be a murderer. We think it's Jacob who becomes Israel later on, but he turns into a liar and a cheat. We think maybe, maybe Moses, right? He's a good guy. He disobeys God's word. We think maybe King David, man after God's own heart. Sexual sinner, murderer. Time and time again, we think maybe this is the time. Maybe the Bible asks us to look. Is this the promised one who is to come? And finally we get to Christmas. To Jesus. And that's, what, that's what's in verse 15. He will strike your head. There is a, a whisper of Christmas. That God is going to come and do what Adam should have done. Right back here at the beginning, you see what the serpent's kind of doing in this whole conflict is he's flipping God's created order upside down. So if you want to think of it like a hierarchy, you've got God at the top here, and then he creates Adam, and he makes Eve his helper. They're both ruling over the garden together, which includes the serpent. He's one of the creatures. And then you have Satan who's come up here, and he's leading Eve, who's then leading Adam, and both of them are rebelling against God. He's, he's inverted the whole thing, and it's really, really grotesque. And what Adam should have done, because he's there the whole time, is when Satan started to speak, he should have said as the vice regent of Yahweh, I command you to shut up. As God's representative, I sentence you to death. And he should have stomped on the serpent's head. But perhaps the serpent's merely symbolic plunged a sword into the heart of Satan. Instead, he willfully sinned. This promise is for a new Adam, and it is Jesus. Adam is tempted in a garden where he has every advantage, and he fails and falters. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness where he succeeds. He obeys God perfectly. Adam goes to the tree, or disobeys about the tree of judgment and brings death to humanity. Jesus goes to the tree of judgment and through his death brings life to all who put their faith in him. Adam blames his bride for his sin. Jesus takes the blame for his bride, the church. Adam fails to crush the head of the serpent Jesus is risen from the dead. And you can still see the blood and bone of the serpent on his heel. Jesus is the true and better Adam who brings us back into relationship with God. He saves us. He saves us from our sin. Romans 5, since by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, 
As through one trespass there was condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 1 Corinthians 15, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Friends, Jesus has conquered death. He has taken care of our greatest fear and our greatest problem. He's reconciled us to God. And he said, don't worry about physical death. I'll raise you up from that. I love Hebrews 2, 14. Now since the children of flesh and blood have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by fear of death. Jesus resurrects so that we don't have to be afraid, so that we can know we have relationship with God right now, and he will raise us up then on the last day when Christ returns. The resurrection, it's not even, it's just such a certain hope. That's why we say Jesus is our living hope. It's something God has already started to do. Jesus is raised from the dead right now. The tombs and the coffins of Christians everywhere already creak and crack with anticipation. There is a resurrection coming. Death's days are numbered. Evil's days are numbered. Suffering is going to cease to exist because Jesus became a man and died for our sins. That's what Christmas is about. It's about God's promise to save us from our own stupid decisions. It's about God's provision for our sin. We sin, he saves. I mean, we we talked about this yesterday, but like, just think about what happened In eternity past, God the Son agreed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that he would swim in amniotic fluid for nine months, that he would nurse at the breast of his mother, that he would endure scraped knees and bruised elbows, that he would experience hunger pains and thirst. He agreed to suffer betrayal, to suffer on the cross beneath the full weight of God's wrath. And the only way he could do that was by becoming one of us. The omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful God becomes a helpless baby so that he could become killable, so that he could die for our sins, for my sin, for your sin, so that he could crush the head of the serpent. And, And friends, one of the beautiful things about Jesus' resurrection is he raised so that we can share in his victory. I love this note from Romans 16.20. It says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we get to share in Jesus' victory. We weren't created to walk on eggshells, but to stomp on serpents. We weren't created to die in rebellion against God. We weren't created to be enslaved to our sinful passions. We were created to live happily ever after with the God we were made for. We 
were created to live together with God. And Christmas is about Jesus coming to fix the mess that we've made. And he will save any who come to him. Christmas is about hope. It's about light in the darkness. It means that we are so lost and so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the Son of God himself could save us, and he came. Christmas is about God giving us what we don't deserve. Santa Claus is a chump. He keeps score. God, well, he's gracious. He's loving. He's eternally good. He keeps his promises so that we can take heart even as we walk through the pain and suffering of this world, knowing that there's a resurrection coming. We don't have to be dismayed by anything. God, rest ye, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Christmas will bring you comfort and joy only if your faith is in the King of Christmas. Come to him. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. God, we are overwhelmed at your kindness to us, at your commitment to us. You died for us. There is no greater love than this. You didn't have to, but you did. You could have just left us to what our sins had earned, but instead you came to save us. That's what Christmas is all about. Lord, thank you for the salvation that is available, that you give to all who come to you with the empty hands of repentance and faith. It's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen.